Every good scientist that I know uh, who is working in this area, looking for signs of life off of our own world, um, they all believe in their secret heart of hearts that we have a good shot at either finding life elsewhere in our solar system or beyond, or finding evidence of past life. Student engagement is key for learning. This is especially important for subjects like science. Some studies have found that while most students enjoy science, many dislike science classes. Why are students less interested in science, especially as they get older? How can we make science education more engaging and available for all students? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Matt Kaplan to find out. Matthew Kaplan is the host and producer of Planetary Radio at the Planetary Society. What started out as a radio show in one station grew to over 150 stations. Now, two decades later, Planetary Radio is ranked the number one independent space exploration podcast. With more than 30 years of experience in higher education and an extensive background in broadcasting and journalism, Matt joins us today to discuss how we can make science more meaningful to students. Matt, welcome to the show. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Kevin. I, I love what you're doing on behalf of uh, uh, kids in America. This is going to be a fun conversation because, you know, I've listened to a couple of your shows. You are a fun generating guy and you believe in the power of kids learning and we need more of that. But before we get into Planetary Society and Planetary Radio and the stuff you've been doing, uh, you were a DJ and you also have been interested in radio for a long time. Your parents brought you a radio transmitter at the age of 10. Talk a little bit about this love of radio that really has lasted almost your entire life. You can ask any of my college radio friends. I was the world's worst DJ. Uh, <laughs> but it was in, well, actually, it was before college that I got my start doing the kind of thing I do today. I don't know if it started with that little transmitter that my parents bought me, but maybe it did. Um, I could transmit about, oh, I don't know, 150 feet. And so I would send my little brothers out into the street with my six transistor AM radio. And if they tuned between a couple of radio stations, they could just barely make out their big brother talking to them. And and I, I maybe that is where I fell in love with this because I, I just love talking to people this way and sharing uh, the love I have uh, for space and science. But I always had my hand in radio, um, often at my old college radio station where they would still let me show up and, and uh, talk to interesting people. And, you know, that led to uh, volunteering, really, at the Planetary Society, and they hired me very quickly. And I worked there for two years before uh, our co-founder, uh, Lou Friedman, our old executive director, uh, allowed me to try a radio show. And it was just a radio show back then. Nobody heard of this thing called podcasting. That didn't happen until years later. We're still on over 100 public radio stations. And, and of course, now we're the podcast as well. But it is this dream of combining space and radio. I always say my two favorite things outside of family 
that that planetary radio has allowed me to do. And really, it's broader than space. It's science in general. You could say science and radio are science and podcasting. But I, I'm I'm very fortunate. So going back to you started with planetary society. Did you have an interest in space or the field of science before joining planetary society? I sure did. Yeah, right from the start. Um, I, I often tell people that I kind of grew up at the Griffith Observatory, those iconic domes that sit up there not far from the Hollywood sign. Uh, I call it a shrine to science. And there are several of those around the world, many of those. I, I, my parents brought me there. We didn't live too far from there uh, when I was very young. They brought me there before I could walk. And it has always played a big part of my life. And, you know, other so-called informal science education facilities in Los Angeles and, and later all over uh, the United States um, had a huge role in, in shaping my love for this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, and then science in school, the funny thing is that once I got to high school and, and then on into college, I never got to take as many science classes as I really wanted. Uh, so uh, I, I really, a lot of this was stuff that I kind of developed on my own with the support of the, the great books that I read and these informal science facilities that I visited. So let's talk a little bit about science and traditional education. Um, many students love science, but they don't love science classes. And the older kids get uh, there are less science classes. So talk a little bit about that and your thoughts on how we could sort of close that gap. Isn't that a tragedy? I mean, that the, uh, kids really do start out, and this is not me saying this, I get it directly from my boss, uh, our CEO, Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill has been following the research on this and, of course, has done more about it than just about anybody in the world with uh, the old science guy show. Um, Bill says if we don't bring out and sustain the natural scientist that is in all kids, because they're all explorers, right? Even toddlers want to taste everything. Why? Because they want to know about their world. And, you know, fortunately, we parents are there to keep them from putting absolutely everything in their mouth. But that's science. That's exploration. And even though this has been talked about for years, there still aren't enough science teachers who are allowed to really kindle or maintain that fire of scientific curiosity that is naturally in, born in us. Uh, and, you know, it becomes rote. It becomes books. I mean, after all, a lot of those teachers also had the science, the love of science drilled out of them as they were coming up uh, through K-12. Um, it's the rare teacher, sadly, who understands, you know, that you can, you can excite kids um, uh, their interest in all of learning through science, because science is a process. Science isn't just this monolith that, you know, some people like to call a religion. It's not. It's a way of understanding the cosmos and ourselves. And it's a great way uh, to apply um, yourself to knowledge about everything. Um, there, are, there are more and more teachers, though sadly not nearly enough, who I think are coming to understand that it's hands-on science. It's letting kids get their hands dirty 
and really explore great questions. Uh, you know, come up with a theory and then figure out how to determine whether that theory is correct or whether it needs to be adjusted. I mean, that's the core of science. And there are ways to do this in the schools that are not that difficult, but they're just not being exercised as much as they should. Now, um, one of the things that's happening, to your point, traditional education sort of morphed to this place where everything had to be sort of codified uh, and placed in a textbook. Uh, and some things, and I think science is one of those, those uh, subjects, uh, are, are better suited to uh, uh, not, not overly relying on textbooks. Uh, and you've talked about informer, informal science teaching uh, so that teachers are able to use the world around them as a laboratory for learning. Um, and we see uh, more and more schools migrating toward that, even with project-based learning, making sure that, you know, they, they, they do field trips where they can explore more. Talk a little bit about how schools should move away from just the textbook book usage and, and as a tool to teach science to this informal science teaching, which allows teachers to go out into the world and explore it. You know, I'm married to a retired teacher, uh, taught uh, in uh, mostly uh, middle school grades for uh, for a lot of years, 30 years. And um, uh, she was lucky in a way because she taught at a parochial school and they they didn't have these constraints on them. They weren't quite as tight as they were in some of our public schools. Um, and in fact, she taught with a science teacher who got it. Uh, and the book was important in that science class. But this was a woman who understood that kids needed the hands-on experience and, um, um, and, and was able to give it to them in, in many ways, even just around the schoolyard. There was so much that they could do. Including science teachers who might want to expand further, but the curriculum, the requirements of curriculum are so tight nowadays, uh, you know better than most, that every single day there is a goal that has to be met. And that goal is probably going to come out of a book. And if you don't meet it, then who knows? I mean, your, your position could be in jeopardy. Uh, and, and that's unfortunately going to constrain teachers um, and and make it so much more difficult to make science or perhaps other topics as other subjects as well as exciting as they might be uh, and uh, you know again there are so many opportunities out there that are that are available to any school it's not that a school needs a you know a, a million dollar lab to be able to give keep uh, give kids a, a hands-on science experience I mean there are opportunities for science all around us we just ne need to let those teachers give them the right training of course and uh, show them the excitement that their kids can find in it and that they themselves can find in it. And then let them loose, let them be with the kids and do what they need to. And, you know, once they've proved their theory or find out what's wrong with it, then go back to the book. And I promise they'll be more motivated to uh, study that material so that they know the background. There's no question that uh, one of the reasons why uh, older kids get less excited about it is that over-reliance on books as opposed to allowing them to explore uh, their curiosity in this area. Let, let's, let's go back to uh, Planetary Radio. When you started it, did you have a vision in mind in terms of how to bring to life this world of space exploration? 
Kind of, yeah. I mean, I had already done a lot of science and technology reporting, and I knew, for me anyway, that the core of the show, the main feature in each show, would probably be an interview with at least one scientist or engineer or astronaut or, you know, the head of NASA or whatever. Uh, and then I hoped that periodically we'd get to do a live show in front of an audience because there's nothing more exciting than live. And I hoped that now and then we'd be able to go out on the road and, uh, you know, do science in person, uh, talk to the scientists in their uh, their natural habitat, if you will, in their lab or, you know, going down to Chile, as I did, <laughs> going up to uh, 16,500 feet with a can of oxygen in my hand uh, and visiting uh, one of the great radio telescope arrays uh, on the planet. Um, because, you know, again, allowing the audience to meet these people that I was getting to talk to and and me just, you know, being there sort of as their avatar, I hope, asking the questions that they might ask and visiting the places that that hopefully they would visit if they had the opportunity. And, you know, maybe they'll be encouraged to do it if they hear me go. Well, you know, what's interesting um, that there have been so many peaks and valleys in terms of the interest in, in space. You know, we, we hit a high point when, you know, the astronauts landed on the moon. Then there were these, this focus on, well, we really shouldn't spend the resources. But now there seems to be a perceptible rise in interest in space exploration. Talk about where we are now, especially when you look at the timeline of where we've come from. That's a great question. I hope you're right. I hope that interest is increasing again now. You know, we, uh, we went through a period when the space shuttle stopped flying. You still can find lots of people out there who say, oh, what does NASA do nowadays? I mean, they're not sending anybody up into orbit. Well, in fact, NASA was crazy busy with robotic missions, with funding research around the world. Um, you know, that's why we like to say, uh, and I, I definitely like to say, we're in a golden era of space exploration because we are learning so much about our solar system and the cosmos. The other good thing about this is that um, as we expand outward, you know, we know the excesses of exploration and exploitation in the past. There we all, many of us hope that we have a chance to get it right this time as we expand across the solar system and learn about the cosmos. I mean, we shall see, uh, but we're off to a good start and we are learning so much just in the last, in the time, the 20 years that I've been doing my show, my gosh, our, our horizons have expanded so far. And it's wonderful to see young people and old folks like us how thrilled we all get when something lands on Mars or like just happened a few weeks ago, we smack into an asteroid with the DART spacecraft and show that, yeah, hey, maybe we humans, we puny humans might just be able to avoid that fate of the dinosaurs that I mentioned a few minutes ago. I have to ask, I mean, I've got, I've got, you know, the planetary guy here, you know, <laughs> is there life outside of our galaxy? I, you know, you, I am maybe a planetary guy, but I'm no scientist. I just happen to talk to them for a living. So uh, every good scientist that I know uh, who is working in this area, looking for signs of life off of our own world, um, they all believe in their secret heart of hearts that we have a good shot at either finding life elsewhere 
in our solar system or beyond, or finding evidence of past life. Now, on Mars, who knows? We know that Mars was a pretty nice place to live if you go back a few billion years, much nicer than Earth was at the time. Warm, there were oceans, uh, pretty much everything that you would need to support life as we know it here on Earth. If there was life on Mars, did it start there independently? Europa, the moon of Jupiter, Enceladus, the moon of Saturn. Um, we know that these moons have salty, warm, liquid oceans underneath layers of ice. Who knows? I mean, a lot of people think that's where life started on Earth now. If you have energy, if you have liquid water on Earth, you're going to find life. Is it true out there? We just don't know yet. And if it weren't for life on this planet, we wouldn't see that our atmosphere is 20% of, made of oxygen. If we found that in the atmosphere of a distant planet, we'd want to take a much closer look at that world because there might be somebody out there to say hello to. You know, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence continues. Uh, it's even grown some lately. Planetary Society has been supporting it throughout its history. There are some other folks out there with privately funded projects. Even NASA, which once was a major funder of this effort, is sort of sticking its toe back into the, the world of SETI water, I guess, the lake of SETI. Um, if we find intelligent life, first of all, I can tell you there's a whole protocol. I know a lot of these people who are looking for it. And we there is a protocol among scientists for how this would be announced. It would absolutely not be kept a secret. Uh, and in fact, it would be a really tough secret to keep, even if you wanted to. But nobody really doing this wants to. Would that cause chaos? Would it throw all of our thinking about human primacy across the universe uh, into, well, chaos? Um, I don't know. It's also possible it might make us feel a lot less alone. Uh, you know, as somebody once said, uh, it's an awfully big universe. If we have it all by ourselves, that seems like a terrible waste of space. I mean, there could be out there people out there who could teach us things. The, the chances are, because we're a fairly young planet and a fairly young species and civilization, if we find somebody else, they're very likely way, way beyond us. And what does that tell us? That tells us that as great as the challenges that we face are, climate change, nuclear war, you can go on from there, this other civilization somehow got past that. And maybe they still have their own challenges, but they probably made it through the ones that we face right now. Could be an opportunity to learn something. Yeah, I think that's well said. And, you know, thinking about this conversation, I have one last question. It, it strikes me that this is the kind of conversation that young people will get excited about if they have more of an opportunity to engage in it. So this is what I really want to know. You have said that every 10-year-old is a natural scientist. So talk to me like I'm a six-year-old. What would you say to the six-year-old Kevin? Don't laugh at that. <laughs> but what would you say to the six-year-old Kevin about space and science that would get me interested in learning more? I giggled a little, but only because it's such a great question. You know what I would do? I would watch that six-year-old Kevin for a little while, and I would see what you do like when you're in the park. 
Um, you know, when you're on playground equipment uh, and maybe on something that spins and it's hard to hang on because that thing is spinning so fast. And I would say, why do you think that thing is trying to throw you off? Well, it's this thing we call centrifugal force. Uh, and it's a lot like gravity. In fact, Einstein said there's no difference between that and gravity. Or, you know, if they found a bug, oh my goodness, wouldn't that open up possibilities wow. if suddenly that, that six-year-old Kevin found a ladybug crawling on his arm. My gosh, that's a wonderful opportunity to talk about life on Earth and how it adapts to its environment and how we all fit into this huge world together. Um, I, I mean, the possibilities are probably endless. And, and I, hope I, I hope you still have a piece of that six-year-old Kevin inside you. Wow, that's such a great answer. In fact, I have two grandkids, and I got to find a way to have you spend some time with them. That's 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 exactly the kind of thing that needs to happen. Matt Kaplan, I tell you what, I certainly enjoyed having you on. I definitely enjoy what you're doing for the world, and uh, thanks for joining us on What I Want to Know. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education and write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.